We are in Mark chapter 13. Take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 13, and I will introduce the sermon yet again. I just did that a minute ago to uh, no one, but we'll try it again now. Mark chapter 13, we're in the middle of this chapter. The chapter is broken down into three sections, and we'll be taking the middle section today. Mark chapter 13, let me read that for us, beginning in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance." Every serious theologian has convictions about what will happen at the end of the age, what will happen at the end of time. The study of end times, as you know very well, is called the study of eschatology or the eschaton, the end time. And very few things actually bring out passionate defenses like one's perspective on eschatology and one's convictions about eschatology. Uh, just listen to the debates, the millennial debates between premillennialism and uh, postmillennialism and ah millennialism, or the the rapture debate, pre-tribulational rapture, mid-tribulational rapture, pre-wrath rapture, post-tribulational rapture. Then you can line some camps up behind covenantalism and dispensationalism. It all gets very muddy very fast, but people get very passionate about this. I have been one of those theologians who has been very passionate about eschatology. I still am. I believe there's a very clear path laid out when you put all of the breadcrumbs together that leads you to a clear understanding of the end. For the stated record, I am a premillennialist, and so is our church. By that, we mean that the Scriptures clearly teach that Jesus will return pre-millennium before an established earthly physical kingdom in which he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. However, being a premillennialist does not convict me to deny that there are indeed aspects of his kingdom that are applicable and in action already inaugurated now. For example, he reigns in the church. He reigns in individual believers' hearts. He is establishing his kingdom one citizen at a time through the Great Commission. Those are dimensions of the kingdom of Christ 
and they are very real in this present age, but not a, a realized physical kingdom that will happen that he's promised. Those physical fulfillments of the physical, literal reign of the king who will rule from Jerusalem are yet in the future, and they are coming. You've likely heard the term, already, but not yet. And that's a good description of many dimensions of the premillennialism that we hold here at Mission Road. Further, I'm convinced that there will be a rapture, a catching up in the air of believers prior to the great tribulation of seven years that Daniel and John both prophesied about. Paul spoke of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he said, verse 16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. These doctrinal convictions of our church that I hold personally are important to state at the very beginning of our approach to this passage this morning. I think the best way to interpret the eschaton, the eschatological layout that's before us, and we're going to come back in a couple weeks and talk about this more specifically, is the return of Christ happens before a literal thousand-year kingdom. That's premillennialism. A rapture of the believers occurs before a seven-year tribulation period known as the Great Tribulation of the book of Revelation. That's a pre-tribulational rapture. And hermeneutically, to maintain a, a vivid distinction between Israel and the church is critical. That means that God will one day fulfill His land and people promises to a saved remnant of Jews from Israel, who will believe in Jesus Christ as their final Messiah, Lord, and Master, then will join us in perfect union in the kingdom as one people of God heading into the eternal state. The church, we don't believe, is the replacement of Israel. We are still looking for that natural branch in Romans chapter 11 of believing Jews to be grafted back into the Abrahamic covenant. We spent many weeks talking about that when we studied Romans. We have to be very careful, though, overlaying our eschatology or our theology over a passage and letting that that passage be clouded. The passage should actually inform our theology. Just to be frank, one of the troubling trends that I've grown up with that many of you are aware of as well, especially in our theological tribe of pre-tribulational premillennialism, is the temptation to be a date setter and a newspaper theologian. In other words, we read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and we are constantly trying to bring a confluence between those two, trying to fit the headlines into the Bible in dogmatic and definitive ways. Many have done that in the past, and frankly, all of them were wrong. Listen, neither Mark nor the Holy Spirit, are pinning a riddle to be solved when they talk about the eschaton or eschatology in this chapter. This is not a theological Rubik's Cube that the angels are watching us twist and conjive to to see if we can disentangle it to figure out the, the end of the age. It's not a riddle. It's an admonition. 
The point is that every generation who would read this passage should find encouragement. Let me say that again. Every, every generation that will read this passage should find encouragement to faithful discipleship and they should find grace for any and every tribulation no matter how light or how severe in the hope that King Jesus is on his way to return to this earth to make all things right and that's the next paragraph in our study. We last week noted that the disciples asked Jesus a question relating to the timing of the destruction of the temple. Jesus said all of these stones will be toppled as beautiful as they are. The kingdom and the whole uh, Jewish system is going to come to a complete standstill. It's going to go out of existence. They didn't see, though, that that would involve Jesus coming to the earth twice in two parts. One of the main mysteries that's unfolded in Jesus and Paul and Peter's unfolding of eschatology is that the return of Christ involves that he was here once and then went away. And we'll see that in in the text next week. It involves Jesus being here, being crucified, rising from the dead, ascending back to heaven, and then coming back or returning the disciples didn't see that. They, they, that was all muddy in their mind. They saw him being there and establishing the kingdom right then and there. They were waiting for the sign of the destruction of the temple, the sign of the end of the age, because then they knew that right after that the kingdom would be established and they thought they would go back up on the hill and be ruling and reigning with Jesus in weeks or months. The disciples were very curious about a timeline When will these things happen? How will we know they're about to happen? That sounds like newspaper theologians of our own day. But listen, Jesus does not provide a timeline. It's important to remember what we noted last week, that the Holy Spirit in inspiring this text really has at least four audiences in mind. And you could probably argue for a fifth. First are the disciples who asked the question, Jesus is speaking to them. Second, Mark recorded that and wrote that to a group of people who had yet to see the destruction of Jerusalem. So that was a group of people before the uh, AD 70. Then there's a group of people, if you want to even call them a a, a third group of people, that included those after the destruction of AD 70 all the way till now. And then another group who would read this passage. One day people will read this passage in the midst of the true and literal and horrific cataclysmic great tribulation. And it will have interpretation and application and meaning for them as well. For every audience, in every age, in every day, Jesus differentiates the two events. The destruction of the temple in the coming 40 years and the events preceding his second coming at the end of the age in a more distant future. However, and listen carefully, that distinction is intentionally blurry from the lips of the Lord. And the reason is what he says is divine genius. Because the application and interpretation of the coming tribulation, the great tribulation and everything in between, has interpretive and application value for everyone. Andreas Kostenberger says this, very helpful. In keeping with prophetic convention, the near event, the coming destruction of the temple in 40 years, 
served as a type or picture foreshadowing the worldwide divine judgment that will come upon the earth at Christ's return. He goes on to say, followers of Jesus will experience increasing persecution and tribulation leading up to the final day of judgment, but they must remain vigilant and persistent in faith, end quote. He's right. In order to prepare the disciples and every generation since for faithfulness, the Holy Spirit inspired this chapter. It's all about preparation. The three sermons that we're going to pull out of this, this chapter all have that in their title. Last week, preparation for enduring discipleship. Today, preparation for foreboding tribulations. And the next week, preparation for Christ's return. The point is not to draw a timeline. The point is to be prepared no matter where you are on the timeline. In fact, the governing statement for understanding the paragraph before us in verses 14 to 23 is given in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now, what's interesting is that's not a comprehensive statement. He hasn't told us everything that would happen in advance. He's told us everything we need to be adequately prepared for whatever is coming and whenever it happens. Genius. It's interesting to think about the word you in that sentence. I have told you everything in advance. Going back to last week, I think that reference points to all of those audiences who would hear, interpret, and apply this text. As we just learned from Kostenberger, the point of this chapter is for every generation to remain vigilant and persistent in faith. And that is why the chapter ends the way it does. Look down at the end of the chapter, verse 37. It's the interpretive application and guide for the passage. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. In other words, be ready and know what's coming. Knowing what's coming is different than knowing the exact sequence of events and what happens. Every theological scheme, we have brothers and sisters, very dear brothers and sisters, who don't hold to pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. But all of them that I know who are faithful to the text are looking forward to Christ's return. All of us understand that we are longing for Jesus to come and redeem and take his people home. A big part of staying on the alert is what we're looking at today, foreboding tribulations, preparation for that knowing that persecution and tribulation are indeed coming in different measures and at different intensities over the course of church history. So to break this passage down today, let's look together and find three preparatory expectations for the coming tribulations. And I put in parentheses S, because there's the great tribulation, but there's also tribulations that will lead up to that. Three preparatory expectations for the coming tribulations. The first is in verse 14, just at the very beginning. The treacherous abomination of Antichrist. The treacherous abomination of Antichrist. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation 
standing where it should not be. And then Mark backs up and says, let the reader understand. I am speaking in a way that you need to have a theological, hermeneutical, applicational clue about what's happening. The climactic event of the coming great tribulation will be the abomination of desolation. What is this? This is a phrase that was originally used of the desecration of the temple in Daniel by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was going to come and desecrate the temple. And we read about this in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 and 32. Let me read that for you. Daniel 11, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifices. They will set up the abomination of desolation, a horrible atrocity that desolates the presence of God in the temple. It desecrates it. Verse 32 of Daniel 11. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display great strength and take action. That is such an important phrase. Because that's the theme underneath all of this destruction, all of this desolation, all of these cataclysmic events in this chapter is exactly what Daniel said of the event he was predicting The people who know their God will display strength and take action. So what was Daniel talking about? Someone who would come in an abominable fashion and desecrate the temple. Well, we find out about that in the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees, which has histories of the Maccabees in it, which are really helpful uh, in looking at the Jewish history and the intertestamental uh, 400 years between the Old and New Testament. Listen to what happened in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 44 to 50. And the king, that's a man named Antiochus, or uh, the, the manifest one, we call him Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. And the king sent letters, king of Syria, by the way, by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow the customs strange to the land to forbid burnt offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice pigs, swine, and other unclean animals. An incredible abomination. And to leave their sons uncircumcised. Almost everything offensive to a Jew, Antiochus commanded by edict for the nation of Israel to follow. Also to eat unclean animals. Then they were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane. So they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. Now what's critical about that, that's the event Daniel is prophesying about primarily in Daniel chapter 11. And the point was someone would come claiming to be the new king and completely change the law of God in the minds of the people. Take them from the path of following God to the path of following him in direct opposition to the regulations laid out in Scripture. That happened in Jerusalem when Antiochus evaded in 168 B.C. 
What he did was horrific. He conquered Jerusalem. He made a shrine to Zeus in the temple at the altar and sacrificed pigs on it. A Jewish abomination of desolation. A desolate temple in, re- in reference to God himself. Jesus now picks up on that terminology and says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing, this is in the future, so he's no longer looking back at Antiochus. This is the future. This would happen to a certain measure in A.D. 70. We don't have any details. We know that the temple was desecrated. It was, it was completely bombarded by the Roman army and left without one stone on another. But this seems to be looking at something yet future, something more distinct, something more descriptive of what happened in Antiochus. The Apostle Paul explains this desecration of the temple as a still future event in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. John describes this future event in Revelation 13, 14 and 15 as something that is yet to happen in the future. Someone will come and desecrate the temple of God. And by the way, the temple of God, if it's going to be desecrated, must be rebuilt. And that's coming in the future as well. This will happen when the Antichrist, after a completed temple, likely in the first three and a half years of the tribulational period, will see Antichrist, the one who comes and says, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the anointed one from God, I am God in the flesh. He will come and set up an image of himself in the temple in the future tribulation. So Jesus' words here to the disciples look to the desecration of the temple which would be completely obliterated in 40 years but also future in that time of worldwide cataclysm beyond A.D. 70 in a time when it would affect the entire planet. As we'll note in our next study, these are worldwide events that could not in any way have been fulfilled in the land of Israel. In AD 70. Simply, Jesus draws on this familiar and powerful imagery of the abomination of desolation they would have known about Antiochus in 168 BC, and he says it's going to happen worse someday in the future in the temple. Isn't it interesting that he's going to stand in the temple that Jesus said is going to be destroyed, which presupposes a rebuilt temple? We'll come back to that in a couple weeks. John is clear that there would be many antichrists. Now, I know we think of the final antichrist, but, but there's a present application for you and me. 1 John chapter 2. Remember, this is the same John who wrote about the future antichrist in the book of Revelation. So he understood the difference. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour just as you heard that antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. That tells us something. There will be a final antichrist, the man of lawlessness that 2 Thessalonians talks about, but there will be many smaller antichrists in a political world, maybe even in our offices who claim to be more than they are. 
and hint toward having solutions to the world's problems that only God can provide. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar who, uh, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Any, anyone and everyone, from the cubicle beside you to your neighbor, anyone and everyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, John says he is Antichrist. This is an Antichrist spirit. It's the spirit, the philosophy, the idea that Jesus is not the Christ. So one who is against that is an antichrist. Second John chapter 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as, their, as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Back to the same thing. Any kind of philosophy, any kind of theology, listen, any kind of person who points to Jesus and says, not the Christ, is operating in the spirit of Antichrist in, in, and is in a sense an Antichrist. How do we put this all together? Abomination of desolation Predicted in Daniel 168 BC, destruction of the temple, many antichrists now, the future antichrist in the great tribulation. David Turner helps so much. Listen to what he says here, so helpful. The upshot of all this is that Jesus' reference to the abomination of desolation in Daniel calls up a complex typology of prophecy and fulfillment stretching all the way from Nebuchadnezzar to the eschatological antichrist. There is no warrant for supposing that the abomination of desolation is a narrow prediction fulfilled solely by the eschatological Antichrist, only to be fulfilled at the end. There is good reason to believe that the various historical desolations of Jerusalem and the temple, including those of Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Roman conquest in 63 BC, the Gaius, uh, Gaius Caligula, in, which was planned but not accomplished in AD 40 to 41, the Zealots in AD 68, and the Romans in AD 70 and 135, all provide anticipatory fulfillments which will lead to the ultimate desolation of the eschatological Antichrist. Listen. The futurist approach to correctly stressing the consummation of the prophecy, the futurist approach that, but does not recognize the anticipatory background. This all argues for some sort of double reference, a near-far approach, if prophecy is to be handled holistically. End quote. That's really helpful. What he's talking about is the genius of Jesus the teacher and the Holy Spirit as a biblical, as the Bible's inspirer to show us that this is very precise and also very applicable in every generation. Yes, there will be a final antichrist that the book of Revelation describes. But it also means we should look back at what happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. We should look around at what happened in the spirit of Antichrist that are not believing that Jesus is who he claims. And it has us look forward to remember that many abominations in history point to the final abomination of desolation of the final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness who will lead the world astray 
and away from Jesus. We have many antichrists today, but we know that there will be a final satanic abomination coming in the great tribulation. So, in short, it encourages us to know that since Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives looking up at the temple, answering the disciples' questions two millennia ago, the encouragement that he gave them to be faithful, to stay faithful, to be aware, and to be evangelistic because doom and judgment is coming, all of that still applies then, now, and will in the future. The treacherous abomination of Antichrist. Expect it. Secondly, the impending urgency of the people. The impending urgency of the people. This is a frightful reality that Jesus describes. As we learned last week, the Lord's use of uh, the illustration of birth pangs, birth pains, picture for us future events. And if I could just borrow from that for a moment, I remember when uh, we were nearing uh, the delivery of our three sons with Kim's pregnancies, one of the things that we were encouraged to do by all of the doctors and the nurses when it got close is keep your bags packed. Always have a bag ready and by the door. Have it in the car so that when those, those final birth pains come, you get in the car and you're already ready for what's coming. What a great illustration. That's what the Lord gave us. It's like birth pangs. Always having your bag ready, always being ready for the coming. Just as I knew my wife was pregnant and a child was coming, we know that there's a pregnancy to God's wrath and it will be birthed on this earth and we need to remain packed and ready. That's the point here. Preparation for the smaller tribulations, preparations for a cataclysmic event that will impact the whole world and those who are alive at that time will need to be ready. Beginning in the middle of verse 14, he simply encourages being ready for the worst at any moment. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. That's where help was, was uh, stationed. Maybe even a reference to Masada. The one who's on the housetop, that's where you go up to change, to eat. It was the, the, the most private part of your house. There was usually a, a stairwell, the, a staircase that went on the outside of the house up to the, house, to the roof. Those who are on the housetop must not go down or go in, in to get anything out of his house. Come right down the side of the house on those steps and run. Persecution and tribulation would come so urgently, so immediately on those anticipating the Jesus is anticipating the fall of Jerusalem and even subsequent persecutions that would happen under Bloody Mary's reign, under, under the Chinese persecution, under North Korea's persecution, under Sudan's persecution. Be ready. It's going to come. There's an urgency. When you get the news of impending persecution, be ready to run. Verse 16, the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat. This can mean a couple things. Don't go home to get your, your clothes. Don't go back to the other side of the field to get your coat. Run. And then there's such grace and compassion in verse 17. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. This ought to get, get our attention. 
Jesus shows an enormous, divine, sweet, loving, precious sensitivity and compassion for women who at any time of persecution would be hindered from fleeing and running for their lives because of caring for little ones. It's possible that he could have been echoing Hosea 13, 16. Samaria will be held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. That's the kind of atrocities that are ahead in the great tribulation. And then he says, but pray it may not happen in winter. Why? Well, during, in that area, running for your lives in winter meant running for your lives during the rainy season. And the rainy season of Palestine would be treacherous. Flash floods happened often, difficult to, to, to forge and to cross streams. In other words, you're trapped. Flooding streams could make crossing impossible and keep you in a death sentence. This is interesting. Notice Jesus, Jesus does not say, buckle up, be brave, stay there, be a martyr. That would be the case. That would be the admonition for many who suffered death on the account of Christ's name throughout church history. But Jesus is not saying that to be a Christian is to take a vow of being a suicide bomber for Jesus. He loves life. He promotes life. He protects life. Run for your life, he says. Not all would make it. The blood of the martyrs would be the actual foundational soil in which the church would grow, but not everyone would have to be a martyr. And Jesus loves enough to offer care here. Sometimes God deems this is one of the reasons that Christians die. God deems that a, a Christian's death now will bring him more glory than their continued life. That's why martyrs die at the stake, crucified on crosses, shot, burned alive. Verse 19. For those days be a time of tribulation, listen, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will be. Now he is undoubtedly, unquestionably looking to that great future event, that great future tribulation. And how do we know that? Because he says it's unqualified, it's incomparable. There's never be, there will be a tribulation compared to which no other tribulation even comes close a time of tribulation the world has never seen until now and will never see before or after. This is the great tribulation described in Revelation 6 through 19. And the key phrase here is that there is a coming tribulation at the end of the age that will be more severe than the world has ever experienced. Now the book of Revelation is penned by the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. He describes a series of horrific events during the great tribulation that the world has never seen before. These things could not and did not happen in AD 70. And they have not happened anywhere on the world since. It has to point to a future 
great tribulation. Can I just give you a brief survey? Just a very brief survey. Revelation 6, 12 to 17, a great earthquake will devastate the earth. Revelation 8, 6 and 7, hail and fire will consume one third of the earth's vegetation. Revelation 8, verses 9 and 8 and 9, a third of the ocean will be turned to blood. Revelation 8, 10 and 11, a third of fresh water will be poisoned. A third, a third of the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened in 8.12. This is all from the book of Revelation. Countless demons will be released from bondage to terrorize mankind in 9.1-12. A third of the earth's population will be killed in chapter 9, verses 13-21. to 21. Another great earthquake will kill 7,000 people in 11.13. Incurable sores will cause people great pain in chapter 16, verse 2. The entire sea will turn to blood and all creatures will die in the sea in chapter 16, verse 3. The rivers will turn to blood in chapter 16, verse 4. The earth will experience extreme heat in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 16. Darkness will engulf the whole world, 16, 10, and 11. The Euphrates River will dry up, 16, 12. And a final global earthquake will cause massive changes so much that the earth's topography will not be recognizable after that earthquake. In chapter 16, verses 17 to 21. Friends, nothing like that has ever happened. Yet Jesus talks about that event, that great tribulation, that will be worse than anything the world has ever experienced. John outlines, received, by the way, from the Lord himself in the book of Revelation. Again, we need to... We need to understand who, who's reading this, to whom this applies. This worldwide, these worldwide catastrophes will mark the final days before the return of Jesus. That will be what we'll look, in the, like, look at in the next paragraph. Think about those audiences. The disciples would not see the great tribulation, but for ten of them, they would face martyrdom. It's hard to tell them that wouldn't be a tribulation. Mark's readers would see the destruction of Jerusalem not long after they received Mark's gospel. They would be chased literally all over the Middle East for being Christians. That would be a tribulation. And then every generation since the completion of the canon, including our generation, would see varying degrees and, and dimensions of tribulations from the persecutions under Bloody Mary to believers in Sudan and North Korea today under threat of life for believing the gospel. That indeed is tribulation. But all of those tribulations pale. They are nothing minimal compared to that great tribulation beginning in Revelation chapter 6, the great and final tribulation that Jesus says is something worse than the world has ever seen. Those people in that day will read this passage and the one in Revelation with unique and precise application. But we still find some for ourselves. 2 Timothy 3.12 is a wake-up call. Paul says... All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Turn that upside down. 
If you're living faithfully for Christ, you'll be persecuted. If you're not persecuted, if there's no one pushing back against the authenticity and the theology of your faith, we have to ask ourselves, are we truly in Christ? Because those who, he doesn't even say who do it, who accomplish it. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This point, is this going to come at any moment? Are our bags packed? Are, packed? are we urgently prepared? When the urgency comes, are we ready? Are you ready? Can I just ask you, are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you ready for cataclysmic judgment? Even in your own world, the betrayal of friends, the loss of jobs or income, pandemics? Are you ready? Do you know Christ? The only way to be ready for minimal and maximum persecution and tribulation, the only way to be ready is to have your eternity secure and your sins forgiven by giving your life and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who offers you forgiveness and hope and a future with him after death that is true and real and heaven. He's alive, he's rose from the grave, and he sits in heaven offering you right now salvation from sin, Satan, self, and from God's wrath. You can believe the gospel today sitting where you are. Become a Christian and have your future secured and hope and perspective for now. If you have any questions, please call the church even tomorrow, or Tuesday rather. We'd love to talk to you about that. There's a third, it's shorter here, a third expectation, preparatory expectation for coming tribulations. Verses 20 to 23, the sovereign mercy of God. The sovereign mercy of God. This is just a brief editorial from the Lord. He talks about how bad it will be in those days and says, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. Not no one would have been saved to go to heaven. There would be no human on the planet because of the cataclysms that were coming. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. God's mercy rests on this planet now and in the final judgment because he is inclined to be gracious toward his own sheep. Jesus is, I think, referring here to the determination of God to cut short the limit of the second half of the tribulation to three and a half years that Daniel talks about in chapter 7, verse 25. Revelation speaks of in chapter 12, verse 14. And I think the term elect has some elasticity to it. It could refer to the nation of Israel. They will be saved in the end as a saved group of Jews who believe in the Lord Jesus and the gospel. It could become those who are become Christians as a result of the ministry of the 144,000 evangelists who go out in the book of Revelation. In both cases, grace and mercy demonstrated in the heart of God shortens those days so that everyone doesn't die. Very simple. Very terse. Verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, this will happen during those last days, this still happens in our day. Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, here he is. He's over there. Do not believe him. As we noted last week, 
There have been many and there will be many in the future who claim to be Christ over the course of church history. But because a true believer knows the voice of his shepherd, Christians are able to maintain discernment. Oh, they may be temporarily hoodwinked, but they always come back to the voice of the great shepherd. The point here is not to be diluted in your theology by those who are deluded in their own. Don't be deceived. Verse 22, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. This is incredible. This is really simply saying... Some of these antichrists will actually leverage satanic supernatural power, perform signs and wonders that will be so compelling and so deceptive that even true believers will be tempted by them. But they will hear and remain faithful to the voice of the great shepherd. Listen to 2 Thessalonians. I spoke of this earlier, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Speaking of the Antichrist, the lawless one, the man of lawlessness. Verse 8, 2 Thessalonians 2. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. During the tribulation, the Antichrist will perform miraculous miracles. And people will think, then that must be the Christ. Boy, what a warning. Believe the gospel now. Don't be here during the great tribulation. Hear the voice of the shepherd. Be raptured to him, taken away into heaven Their target is to get as many followers as possible to be confused and deluded, confused by who he is and by who God is. This is a heads up from our Lord to be aware that we are specific targets for antichrists. If you know the Lord Jesus, be ready for people to try to deceive you into believing myths and tales that are not true conspiracies, delusions. But God's mercy will shorten the days in that great tribulation to three and a half years. Amazing grace and kindness here. I think we should find some encouragement here as well. In our darkest times, in your darkest moments, in your worst hours, physically, emotionally, the things that trouble you most, They will not be as bad as it's going to get in the end, but even now, God's grace will shorten those experiences mercifully because that's the God we have. And should he decide in his glory not to and to bring us to martyrdom, there will be grace for that then. God's restraining mercy is a present help in time of trouble. And then it climaxes in verse, paragraph does in verse 23. Take heed. Behold, I've told you everything in advance. Not everything that's going to happen, everything you need to know to be prepared for whatever happens. 
Back to David Turner, who writes this. Jesus' eschatology, eschatological discourse encompasses both a now past event, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and a future event, the appearing of Jesus to judge the world. In keeping with the prophetic genre of this discourse, its promises are presented not so much in terms of predictive specificity as in terms of ethical implication. We should hear of the coming tribulations and respond in holiness, not in becoming newspaper theologians. Newspaper eschatology generates fear, generates anxiety, generates uncertainty. On the other hand, biblical eschatology generates faithfulness, generates motivation, generates holiness, and generates hope. If those are not what your eschatology are building in your emotional kind of bolstering protection against the world, then you're not reading the Bible correctly. The good news of the gospel is that we can find hope in trouble, especially for our uncertain times and our uncertain deaths through placing our trust in Jesus. He's told us everything in advance. We are thoroughly equipped because we have the word of God to be ready for anything in any generation and for every tribulation. What a grace. What a predict, protective, predictive, preparatory grace he's given us. I trust you know the Savior. I trust that he is your hope. I trust that no tribulation can steal your joy because you know the voice of your shepherd.